This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, welcome everyone to our uh, to our seminar. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, I know that there are a bunch of seminars that you can attend, and so we're thankful that you're here uh, with us today. We're doing a s- seminar on leadership, and when they asked me to do uh, to address the topic, uh, I was thinking, man, I everything that I have to share on leadership, I can probably share in like two or three minutes, and uh, they're giving me six hours. And so uh, as we talked more. Uh, rather than addressing uh, issues on leadership, I thought the best thing for me to do is to uh, to feature leaders that have impacted my life personally. And so that's actually what we're doing throughout the uh, the whole of our seminar. We're featuring leaders in various capacities and in various forms. Normally, uh, we have ideas of, of, of what a leader should look like, and so we're trying to provide as many varieties of leadership as possible. At the same time, we want to address some basic topics on leadership, and so the majority of our seminar is dealing with uh, featuring leadership uh, in an interview style, but we have one or two lectures that, we're, that we will be having, and today is uh, one of those times. And so I uh, want to introduce to you Pastor Cameron DeVasher. He's a pastor in Michigan. And uh, several months ago, we were doing a conference together for public university students, and uh, I was really, really blessed by the messages that he presented uh, dealing with youth leadership and with uh, the leadership of the church. And so I asked him to come and to present some of that here because I thought everyone would, would, would value it as much as I did. And so we have him. He will be presenting our uh, topic today on church leadership. Yesterday we addressed the topic of women in leadership, and uh, we had a, uh, a discussion with a panel of ladies from a variety of, of, of leadership experiences, and that's what, what uh, we addressed. So you know, the, the lectures will be recorded but the interview conversations will not be recorded. That's just something that we will, that we will keep here, and that's just to keep the interest uh, uh, local for, for the people here to provide GYC attendees a, a special experience. And so that's just uh, for your information. Let's bow our heads for prayer, and then after that, I'll give the floor to Pastor DeBasher. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for another day of life that you've given to us. And we're thankful, Lord, that in the mind of God there exists a model of leadership you uh, use common people uh, to lead your people, but ultimately you are the leader of your church and you are the leader of each individual. And so we ask, Lord, that as we look at biblical principles for leadership, that you'd open our eyes, help us to learn something that will uh, impact our our ministry as a leader and impact your church as a whole. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Israel? Um As, as you mentioned, this is not going to be one of the interview style uh, formats, and this is also not going to be uh, a preaching format either. I promise I will do my best to not run across the stage or anything like that. Uh, but but this is going to be rather nerdy. This is kind of a geeky Bible study kind of thing, and, and I, I hope that's honestly why you're here at GYC. Obviously, connecting with friends and, and hearing speakers, that's great, but I hope that you really, really want to know more stuff about God and His Word than you did before you got here. Okay? Very simple goal. We want to study the Bible. So I, I, would, I hope that you have your Bibles with you. If you do, at this point, take them out. And I want to share with you some perspective on organized religion. Now, uh, I know you're, it'll be towards the end we're going to get practical application. A lot of this is just theological, uh, just structure, a lot of... Uh, theory that will have practical application, but we need to have a framework in our minds as to what we're talking about. Oftentimes, I'll just put this out there, skeptics of organized religion have likely never seen it. This is my working premise for today. Most people who do not like organized religion, which is going to be most people, say like, oh, organized religion, oh, no, no, no. And they might even say, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Or, 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 Or I like Christ, but I don't like the church or structure, organization, hierarchy, those type of things, those are bad, dirty words today in, in the general zeitgeist of our times and our psychological makeup of, as even inside the Christian church, we seem to have an inherent uh, disdain for organized religion, or it seems to be that way. But my, my premise today is that skeptics of organized religion have likely never seen it. Instead, 
They've seen an inaccurate caricature of it. Okay? Uh, let me give you this example. Ty Gibson uh, likes to tell the story of his, the time he sat on an airplane next uh, sat on an airplane. He sat in an airplane next to a gentleman uh, who obviously was not a believer. I think he was actually reading it. Uh, Ty was reading his Bible, and, and the guy kind of looks over at him and keeps seeing, you know, and basically says, oh, you, you're reading the Bible, I see. He's like, yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, and he asked him, well, what do you do? He said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher, actually. And so Ty turns around and says to him, and he tells him what he does, and he says, are you a Christian? He's like, no, man, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. To which Ty comes and says, oh, that's great. I'm an atheist, too. And you've probably heard the illustration before. He said, I'm an atheist, too. And they go, whoa, how are you studying the Bible, being a teacher, being a pastor, and being an atheist? And Ty says this, you tell me, you describe for me the God you don't believe in. And, of course, he goes down the line, oh, the God that I don't believe in is this maniacal God who's destructive and genocidal and hateful and chauvinist, all these terrible things, and he attributes it to God. And Ty says, see, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God of the Bible. He gives an opportunity to say, like, the picture of God that you have in your head, I don't believe in that either. And the same thing is true for organized religion. I think when people say the term organized religion, they have a picture in their head that is inaccurate, and they're railing against that thing instead of the actual thing that it is. So what I want to do today is kind of outline that God's work is always organized. Let me me put an emphasis on that. God's work is always organized, and I'm going to give a history of how God has worked in an organized manner, and towards the end, bring it down to practical application, how we can be involved in his organization. Does that make sense so far? All right. So here we go. Oh, let's not go there yet. Oh, that's almost killed the whole thing. All right. Please take out your Bibles. This is where we're going to do our Bible study. Of course, God's, God's structure and organization can be seen right off the bat. I mean, if you go through, and we're not going to take a lot of time to go through every detail, but some things we're going to highlight specifically. But just look at the world around you. Nature itself speaks to a God of order and not a God of chaos. Things function. In fact, the most accurate timepiece in the universe is the universe. Uh, you, you set your clocks to it. it it's, it's accurate. It's fine. Uh, God worked in order in creation, for which we should be glad. Uh, first day, second day, third day had their proper sequence and order. If God had created man on day two, we'd be dead by day three. See what I'm saying? We had to have these things in place first, and God works in structure, and then he gives instructions of how to operate that. For instance, he made the mechanism of the human body. And if you go to Genesis chapter 1, uh, you'll see there uh, when he makes man and creates him in his image, then he says, here's the food you're supposed to eat to operate this thing. He gives instruction of how the thing works. That's how God operates his organization uh, is part of his essence, is part of his being, it's what he does. But let's go on. Of course, Noah and the ark, you can look at how he organized the, the building of the ark for the salvation of, of humanity and the animals, and, and how long it took, and how he raised up different people just the right times. But perhaps nowhere, especially in the Old Testament, and perhaps nowhere else in the Bible, is God's organization more clearly seen than the establishment of his chosen people, the children of Israel. Okay, I want to take some time which, of course, the New Testament calls the, them the church or the congregation in the wilderness. When God raised up a church, an organized body of his chosen people, he organized it in a very particular way. And I think this study is absolutely fascinating. For instance, let's start with Hebrews, uh, I mean, sorry, Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Moses is on the mountaintop. And you know the text pretty well. Some of these are probably very well known, but I want to link them together in such a way that they might be helpful and insightful in a new way for you. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, we read God's command to Moses, and let them make me a what? Sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So, for instance, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, is not a New Testament concept. It goes all the way back from the beginning. In fact, all the way back to the garden. God comes down and meets with him in the cool of the day. He wants to be with his people. And he says, have them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. But he doesn't just say, now make me a sanctuary and just go crazy. You know, if you like this style, go for it. If you like modern, if you like deco, if you like this guy, do do whatever you want. Just you honor me in your way. He doesn't say that. He has very specific instructions. Watch this, verse 9. According to all that I, what? Show you. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Basically, God says, I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you a blueprint. In fact, I I 
personally believe that he gave him more than a blueprint. I think he gave him a 3D tour of the real thing. And he says, I want to show it to you, and then you go down and make it just like that. And the reason I think that is because the book of Hebrews says so. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. It comments on the building of God's house, his sanctuary, his dwelling place among man. Hebrews chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, so Moses was told to build this one, but it was built on a pattern of one that was in heaven. In fact, the text goes on to say, 4, verse 3, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. For if he were a priest on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, here's the key, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. You see what he's laying out here? That the earthly tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary that Moses was called to make was a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. In fact, that's the actual language the NIV uses there. The copy and shadow of the things that are in heaven. The things that in heaven. In fact, he goes on to say, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, and that's he with a capital H, God himself said, see that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So you link these two texts together, and he wasn't just shown a blueprint or just told about the heavenly sanctuary. He was actually shown the heavenly sanctuary. He says, I want you to build my house, and it looks like this. Wow. And I was like, okay. And he goes back and builds a replica, a copy, or a shadow of what is in heaven. That was God's dwelling place on earth. And the picture that I had in my mind, that part I got. I knew that in the camp of Israel, God's house, and of course we know that there's, we could go into it, there's the courtyard and the holy place and the most holy place, and each inside of the most holy place had the Shekinah glory and the, between the two, two, two angels on the mercy seat. By the way, isn't it great that it's called the mercy seat, not like the seat of damnation? You know, it, it, it's the mercy seat, but it sits on top of God's law. There's the justice and mercy blended. It's a beautiful thing. You could study the sanctuary, as many people do over and over and over. But, re, but the, this, this concept that the sanctuary is an image, is a photograph of heaven is something rather unique to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we know that this is an ongoing ministry right now. What I did not understand growing up is that God's organization, as particular as it was for his own house, extended to the rest of the houses in the camp. I kind of have a picture in my mind. After that, I, I was very, I'm very sure about the holy place, most holy place, courtyard. But after that, I knew that there were Levites and priests around there somewhere, And then everybody else was just kind of out there. But that's not the picture we see from Scripture. In fact, let's go on. Go back now to uh, Leviticus chapter 1. And we're going to see how the Lord organized the rest of the camp. It wasn't just his house. It was all the houses. Leviticus chapter 1. And towards the very end of that chapter... uh, Let's see here. I think I might have the wrong reference there. Numbers chapter 1. <laughs> it's like, I'm a very wrong book. I'm sure they'll, they'll fix that for uh, the, the recording, so it'll sound perfect. <laughs> and they'll take out your laughter, too. All right. Let's start with verse 52. Numbers chapter 1, verse 52. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard, according to their armies. Okay, everyone had the particular place in the camp, according to their family, their tribe, their, their, their encampment there, and they each had a, what was that word that was slid in there? A standard. What is a standard? You guys are at least upper high school, if not college. You know, what, what are some synonyms for a standard? Okay, a measure, but I'm thinking more of an actual, not, not the idea of a standard, but the, a, a tangible thing. It's like a flag, right? A logo, an emblem, okay? And each family, each camp, had its own flag, its own logo, its own icon. And they camped around it. In fact, let's develop this a little bit more. 
But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. So here you had God's camp, his dwelling place was built first, and it started from the inside out. It always does. God, by the way, this is a powerful thought. God always builds things from the inside out. Starts with his own place. You look in the establishment of the sanctuary itself, the first piece of furniture was the only one in the most holy place. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And then when Moses assembled it, because God lived in basically a manufactured home, you know, he had a piece of a modular home. It was built all together, and then they brought it together and assembled it. But it started from the inside out. And then God came. He wants to do the same thing with you, by the way. See what I'm saying? And, that, and that's how you turn it into a spiritual thought. You know, these are not just ideas out here, but this is practical application. But we'll go on. The first group of people were the Levites around the tabernacle. goes on. Thus, verse 54, the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. And we'll just keep into chapter 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Here it is again. Beside the emblems of his, of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. So, the Levites were the closest, and then beyond them, they were supposed to each camp by their standard. And how many people were involved in the Exodus? I mean, we're talking not just 10,000 or 20,000 or even 100,000. We're talking close to 2 million people, right? Huge, huge numbers of people. Have you ever gone? I lived in, in, in Orlando, or near Orlando, Florida, which is like the home of every tourist trap, big parking lot thing on the planet, Right? Roller coasters, theme parks, and these things have massive parking lots. Massive parking lots. And when you go in and park your car, you don't remember where your car is. They don't expect you to remember where your car is. Because I drive a silver compact SUV. Do you know how many million silver compact SUVs are out at SeaWorld? You're never finding it, you know. And you can ride in roller coasters, eating funnel cake and stuff. You come out and you can't find your car. What? How do they expect you to? They've anticipated that problem. And what do they do in those giant parking lots when they need to organize two million cars? Standards, flags, emblems, icons, logos, right? So you don't look for your car. You look for, like, the whale with the sombrero on or something. You look, like, for the penguin that's got the silly. You look for that logo that they have, and you're like, all right, I'm six bases from that thing, right? So you don't have to look for your car. You look for the emblem, Right? This is exactly how the camp of Israel was organized. You don't look for your tent. They all look the same. You know, it's like, I'm by the dry spot in the desert. What, are you kidding me? I'm by that flag. That's how they remembered it. And that's how they're supposed to be set up. And then I said, oh, okay, so you have God's house. Then the Levites were around the thing closest. And then beyond them, they each had a standard. And then they were just told to go wherever. Watch how cool this gets. Now, if we were to go through the rest of this, and we just don't have time to do it, but we'll just read the first one here in verse 3. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with what camp? With Judah shall camp according to their armies. And it lists off how many were there. And then verse 5, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And it goes on, verse 7, then comes the tribe of Zebulon. And then at the very end, verse 9, all whose num- and it numbers them off, and it says, these shall break camp first. So on the east side, which from your perspective would be over here, correct? On the east side, there was Judah along with Issachar and Zebulon. But you notice there was the main one was Judah, and he also had with him, because how many tribes were there? Twelve tribes. And, and Levi's already had their claim carved out, but you still need, and you've got four sides. So you're going to have three on each side. And then not just, hey, you three go over there and set up. No, 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 you have Judah here in the center, and with them you have Issachar and Zebulon, and this is the east side, and when we break camp, you're the first ones to go. I mean, this thing was organized like, like gears, right? And it goes on, the rest of chapter 2 goes on to outline which sides of the, of the sanctuary each of the, each of the families were on and which standards were planted there, okay? So what you would eventually have emerge, there's absolutely no clock, is there? Like a big, just just keep doing this the whole time. Something help me out. Um, what you'd have is you pan out. You'd start from the most holy place, then the holy place, then the courtyard, then the space, and you'd have surrounded by the 
Levites, and of course they're the ones who cared for the tabernacle, and of them were the, tri- the sons of Aaron, who were the priests of the tabernacle. They would care for the services and the, and the building itself. And then beyond that would be these 12 tribes, but not 12 tribes just scattered randomly. You'd have three on this side, three on this side, three on this side, three on this side. And on each side, each cardinal direction, you'd have a main standard. And then the other ones were attached to it. Is that making sense? I'm going to put a picture on the board here in a minute, but I want you to have a picture in your mind first. This is how the camp... Now, one last step of organization, which is just fascinating to me. Fascinating. You'll find this one in 1 Chronicles. And go to 1 Chronicles chapter 24. 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Of course, the sanctuary that Moses built was just the temporary thing until they got established in the promised land, and then it was going to be established permanently. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, you find the instructions for how even the priests who ministered in the sanctuary to be further divided. They were divided in their rounds of service, okay? And if you were to read through chapter, 20, uh, chapter 24 here, the division of the priests, we could read through the first 19 verses. We'll just start with verse 1 just to give you a flavor. Now, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, and did they have any children? No. What happened to them? They were killed. They were destroyed. So they were technically still his sons, but they weren't in existence anymore. Okay? Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. Therefore, Eliezer and Ithamar ministered as priests. So they said, well, it's only the sons of Aaron and half the sons are dead. So we'll just establish it through these two sons. Okay? But that's how God's going to work it. Then David took Zadok of the sons of Eliezer and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar. And what did he do? He divided them according to the schedule of their service. So there was a division of the families of Aaron according to their divisions of service. And just out of a guess, if you want to take a stab, how many divisions of the priests who sat around the sanctuary did they end up with? Very good guess. 24. Why would you? Was that you? Why would you guess that? Thank you so much. You're bringing us into our next point. I love a nerdy group. Scholars, every one of you. This is wonderful. Now, let's take the picture out. Oh, uh, Jewish history will tell us, by, by the way, if you were to wild stab and guess, you know, what animal would represent the tribe of Judah? A lion, right? And, and, and Jewish history will tell us, uh, tradition will tell us what the other flags represented. But basically, you'd have a picture where you had the most holy place, holy place, courtyard. This is God's dwelling place. Around it, you would have the Levites divided into their 24 rounds of service. And then outside of that, you would have all the rest of the tribes. But they weren't just scattered. They were organized very much, too. They have uh, the main tribe here and here and here and here, which were Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. And it just so happened that the lion represented Judah, the man represented Reuben, the ox represented Ephraim, and Dan was represented by the eagle. So now we go to Revelation chapter 4. See if this sounds similar. Verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. You know, in much the same way that Moses was called to look at the pattern of the heavenly sanctuary, now John is saying, hey, come up here and look into heaven and see what it looks like. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things that must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So the very first thing he looks at is a throne in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he, was, he was sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne and an appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeding lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. Do you have anything like that in the sanctuary? Of course, right outside of God's immediate presence there in the, in the holy place, you have the seven lamps of fire burning. goes on. Before the throne... There was a sea, we're in verse 6, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, were the four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first was like a lion, the second living like a calf, the third living creature had the face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like the flying eagle. 
This is what heaven looks like. <laughs> and so when I say that organized religion is a little piece of heaven on earth, I'm not using that as a euphemism or colloquialism. I honestly am coming to the conviction that God literally wants fallen humanity to look at his people on earth and say, aha, that's what heaven's like. See what I'm saying? That literally is a photograph of heaven. Now, of course, just the organization of the camp was not all that that was supposed to do for Israel, but that was a piece of it, right? Mrs. White talks about this. The government of Israel was characterized by the most thorough organization, wonderful alike for its completeness and its simplicity. By the way, this should inform how we operate church. It should be completely organized and yet simple, so be quick and nimble and pragmatic and work. Goes on. The order so strikingly displayed in the perfection and arrangement of all God's created works was manifest in the Hebrew economy. God was the center of authority of the government and the sovereign of Israel. So he was the highest leader. He was the head of the church, if you will. Very New Testament language too, but it's Old Testament as well. Moses stood as their visible leader. Of course, God is invisible, but Moses is the spokesman for God by God's appointment to administer the laws in his name. From the elders of tribes, a council of 70 So you have the 12 tribes and then the 70. We're going to see that in the New Testament as well. Uh, Was afterwards chosen to assist Moses in the general affairs of the nation. Next came the priests who consulted the Lord in the sanctuary. Chiefs or princes ruled over the tribes. Under these were captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties and captains over tens. By the way, small groups is not some newfangled idea. (laughs) They were doing it all the way. We come up, it's like, you know what we should really do? Oh, it's so innovative, it's cool. What we want to do is get just a few group of people together and study the Bible, and then we can get those people, and we can have some synergy, and that group will, come on! You're trying to reinvent a wheel that already exists. I'm going to give you the punchline of the whole seminar right now. We need to stop trying to reinvent the wheel and drive the car God's already given us. Amen. But now I have nothing to say at the end, but anyway. <laughs> Goes on. Uh, and lastly, officers who might be employed for special duties. It's like, and if that didn't incorporate, you can have establishment. Oh, we need someone to minister for this need, or then I'm going to do this. And they appoint someone. They develop an office as it's needed. It's very pragmatic. The Hebrew camp was arranged in exact order. It was separated into three great divisions, each having its appointed position in the encampment. In the center was the tabernacle, the abiding place of the invisible king. Around it were stationed the priests and Levites, and beyond these were encamped all the other tribes. This is a little book, a little known book called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 374. But study into it. It's in the chapter, I think it's 33, from Sinai to Kadesh. Uh, Fascinating stuff. But why was it organized at all? Why did God even have a special people? It was organized, as we're going to see, for service. Israel was... God's people are always organized for a purpose, for service. Genesis chapter 12, I put these on the screen. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt what? Be a blessing. God did not bless Israel. He's like, I'm going I'm to give you this encampment. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to keep you free, free from disease. I'm going to give you a health message. I'm going to give you all this stuff. And you guys just <sighs> enjoy the blessing. No. He's like, I have blessed you to bless others. The purpose of me leading you is so that you can lead other people to me. You're blessed to be a blessing. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore... If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're supposed to live in holiness and be a kingdom of priests, which of course priests mediate between the Lord and fallen man. You are supposed to be my representatives on the earth, and the most effective way you can do that is to follow my commands. Not just individually, but corporately. How much? Just say it. say it. How much? 30. Oh, perfect. Great. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. I really appreciate it. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land whether you go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So you imagine if you've never heard of God before, you've ne- you didn't know there was a special people, and you're wandering through the desert and you walk into this group of two million people and they're all perfectly in unity. They're all perfectly harmoniously working together. Okay, that structure alone will get your interest. 
How do you do that? And then you start talking to one of them, and you find out that they're personally really, really nice people. And then they have some very particularly cool laws. And if you go through the laws of Israel, they were awesome. You know, you get your stuff back. You know, they have things like a sabbatical year. There's an entire year where you're not allowed to go work. It's like, man, I don't understand the sanctuary, but I want to be a part of that. You know, it's something appealing. It's like, no, no, we trust the Lord. It'll yield its crop for us when we need it. But we'll just trust his organization. We're going to work the system. Cool. You know, Uh, and then you start to see in their personal lives and their interactions, you see them living out the law of God itself, the great moral law. All of this would combine and you would literally get a picture of the kingdom of God, not just in theory, not just an ethereal kind of ideology, daydream type of thing, but you would see it in action and it would draw people to the God who set it up. Basically, the church is supposed to be God's embassy in Satan's territory. Right? A little outpost of heaven here in enemy territory. It's fascinating. God always uses his people to reach people. And you can really expand this. God always uses his people to reach people who are not his people to become his people. So they can go reach more people who were not his people. You know, people reaching people is God's modus operandi. That's how he works. In her appeals for church organization, which was a big deal in Adventist history, there was a long time, we'll get into this in a minute, where Adventist even had a trouble becoming a denomination at all. They were so embittered against organized religion. I mean, a lot of them had been kicked out of their organized religions, had been disfellowshipped from their churches because they believed that Jesus was coming soon, and they were thinking, how in the world can the body of Christ on earth not look forward to the coming of Christ in the heavens? And I get in trouble for talking about the coming of Jesus, and they were disfellowshipped. And for instance, in the case of the White family, that Mrs. White and her parents, she wasn't the Harmon family, you know, the, 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 the charge brought against them was not that they believed in something unbiblical, it's just they were no longer Methodist enough, right? And they're saying, whoa, whoa, And it was out of that context that people started to develop after the Great Disappointment, the organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they're like, man, organization is Babylon. It's oppressive. It's false. It's off. We cannot take a name. We can't incorporate. We can't have land holdings. We can't have a publishing house. Because that's organized religion, and that is the enemy. Mrs. White had to speak very, very clearly against this kind of thinking. Watch this here. Uh, By the way, angels. She always references in particular the angels, how they worked. This might bum some people up out about heaven, but I'm going to share with you some stuff that there are committee meetings even in heaven. And some of you are like, look, I'm just done. (laughs) I don't even want to go. But watch, watch this here. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, speaking of angels, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Angels are are ministering spirits. They're basically his people in the heavens, like we're supposed to be his people on the earth. And they are sent forth at God's command to work for the salvation of souls, just as we are supposed to go out and win people for God. They're doing the same work there that we're supposed to be doing here, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Patriots and Prophets 376, God is a God of order. Everything connected with heaven is in perfect order. Subjection and thorough discipline mark the movements of the angelic host. You know, angels don't just fly around willy-nilly. But I know that's the picture we've been putting in our head. Boy, someday when you get to heaven, you get a pair of wings and you go, anywhere you want, do anything. No, you won't. (laughs) You're going to obey God then. I don't know how we get in the idea that you have to obey God now so that when you get up to heaven, it's total anarchy. No. Sorry. (laughs) Success can only attend, what's this word? Order and harmonious action. Think about this, young people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you want to be successful, organize. Or better yet, work with the organization God has set up. God requires order and system in his work, now no less than in the days of Israel. All who are working for him are to labor intelligently, not in a careless, haphazard manner. He would have his work done with faith and exactness that he may place the seal of his approval upon it. The organization of the angels. You go to Job chapter 1. Watch what we find here. Now, I know there's the whole uh, theological battle here in Job between Christ and Satan, and Job is basically the tug of war, uh, is the rope in the tug of war between Christ and his enemy. And that's what the book of Job really outlines. But I want to bring out something that you may not notice here, what it actually implies. Verse 6, Job chapter 1 and verse 6. 
Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, we're not going to get into the conversation between what Satan said to Christ, what Christ said back to Satan, but do you just notice what they did? There was an appointed day when these sons of God, which I'm just going to throw out there, are representatives of other worlds that God has created, were to come together and have a meeting. And Satan also comes among them. You know, so the, 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 the transcribing angel must look and see who's present and attending that day. Like, all right, uh, from, and I don't know, I don't know how to name other planets. You know, they're always like sci-fi names, like QRZ, you're here, check, check, check. And then they see Satan, it's like, and God asks them the question, where are you from? The implication being that all the other people are from somewhere else. So they live out there, and there's an appointed day where they come together before God to have a meeting. And the thing that made this meeting different is not the fact that there was a meeting, it's the fact that Satan came among them, this meeting. Do you see the difference? The meeting wasn't out of the ordinary. It was the attendee who was out of the ordinary. Then we go on to chapter 2. Look at this. This one says the exact same thing except it adds one word. What's the very first word in chapter 2, verse 1? Again. (laughs) Apparently they meet with some sort of regularity. There's a schedule, a calendar. You have to sync your calendars in heaven. And apparently these people represent these other worlds and we'll get, you know. So apparently there's leadership and representation and schedules and committees in heaven. Let me give another example. Go to 1 Kings chapter 22. There are very few times in scripture where the veil is pulled back and, they, and it's written for our admonition. But here in 1 Kings chapter 22, Micaiah the prophet uh, is called in to give some, uh, give some instruction to the king, some counsel to the king. And, of course, there's a whole story behind that, too. Verse 17. Uh, wait a minute. Let's see here. Verse 19, I'm sorry. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. Right? He was shown a picture of the throne of God, and there are all the people attending him. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Notice the Lord here apparently is like chairing a meeting and he's asking, does the Lord need help from his created beings? Especially when it comes to like thinking of a plan? Of course not. But he involves his created beings anyway. Goes on. So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. What you have here is a committee meeting. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Then the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said to him, you shall persuade him and he will and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, the whole theology of that experience is fascinating on a whole other level, but I want to show you at least a couple of examples in Scripture um, where you have the veil pulled away and you see that God works with his heavenly creatures in an organized, systematic way. He has committee and structure in heaven. Now, which leads me to this statement in early writings, page 39. There's perfect order and harmony in the holy city. All the angels that are commissioned to visit the earth, okay, so apparently there are some angels who are not commissioned to visit the earth. Some say there's, there's different jobs. But they hold a golden card. Where, did you have, you know, can you imagine going through the gates and you're like, okay, welcome to heaven, here's your, your meal too. It's like, Seriously? I just thought it was free reign. No. They hold a golden card, which they present to the angels at the gates of the city. (laughs) It's going to be like GYC. (laughs) As they pass in and out. And then she writes these words. Heaven is a good place. (laughs) You know, you would think like, oh man, that sounds terrible. And she's like, it was perfectly structured. Everyone had their card. Everyone had their assignment. They knew what they were doing. What a good place. But somehow Satan has gotten us to thinking that organization is the enemy of true religion. But it's not the case, friends. It's not at least the biblical case. Angels work harmoniously. Uh, Perfect order characterizes all their movements. The more closely we imitate the harmony and order of the angelic host, the more successful will be the efforts of these heavenly agents in our behalf. 
Think about the gravity of that. The more we imitate the harmony and order of the angelic host, the more successful will be the efforts of these heavenly agents. We help the angels succeed by our organization, or we help them fail through our lack of order and organization. Watch this, it continues. If we see no necessity for harmonious action and are disorderly, undisciplined, and disorganized in our course of action, angels who are thoroughly organized and move in perfect order, what are the next words? Cannot work for us successfully. It's not that they won't work for us, but they can't because you have a perfectly synchronous, perfectly ordered system here and you have chaos and disorder and hubbub down here and they don't match. They turn away in grief for they are not authorized to bless confusion. They want to be a blessing, but we stop them from the blessing that they want to give. They turn away in grief, for they are not authorized to bless confusion, distraction, and disorganization. All who desire the cooperation of the heavenly messengers must work in unison with them. Those who have the unction from on high will in all their efforts encourage order, discipline, and union of action, and then the angels of God can cooperate with them. But never, in this case you didn't get that, she repeats it, never will these heavenly messengers place their endorsement upon irregularity, disorganization, and disorder. If whatever you're trying to do for the Lord is a disorganized, haphazard mess, it will not succeed. All these, and she calls it evils, are the result of Satan's effort to weaken our forces, to destroy courage, and prevent successful action. Have you ever noticed that, that Satan knows God's order and God's way of doing things, God's government, better than we do? I mean, wasn't he a worker? He was one of the covering cherubs. Do you think he's ever seen a golden card before? Of course. He knows the angels going back and forth. He went to the committee meeting in Job there that we talked about. And he's been, he, he's been an inside man. He knows the power of unity and harmony and organization. And he wants to implant in Christians this idea that that is the enemy of real spirituality. Real spirituality is individuality. Strike out on your own. Think your own thoughts. Go against the government, which, by the way, is exactly what caused Lucifer's fall. He felt self-sufficient, thought God's way of doing things was inappropriate, was out of order. Mm. Which, by the way, I, I do find that interesting, though, as much as he doesn't like God's system of order, he knows pragmatically that he needs order to exist. Did you know that Satan's forces are unified? They have a mission, too. Go ahead and look it up sometime. In your, in your Bible study, do it. Do, do a little word search for in one accord or as one man or something like that. And you'll find that the time that there are just as many, if not more, times in Scripture where God's enemies were united as one man or as one voice or as one people against the Lord and were successful. As, because I think about, like, they're all together in one accord. You think of Acts, right? This is what our conference is about. They're all together in unity. In fact, let me just show you this one. Acts chapter 2. Do not ever think for a moment that Satan is disorganized in his efforts to bring down God's people. In Acts chapter 2, we know this very well, uh, that at the conclusion of Peter's speech, his great sermon after the 3,000 were baptized, uh, they were all with one accord. Uh, it says, with verse, uh, oh, let's see, where should we start there? Well, you just know it. We don't need to read through the whole thing. But at the end of Acts chapter 2, you'll see how they, they were all with one accord and they... And they gathered together and shared with each other daily. But now go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin. Verse 54 is key. After he says, in verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, he is preaching harder than Wes Peppers this day. <laughs> verse 54, When they heard these things, they were what? Cut to the heart. The, the leaders, the Sanhedrin people, knew he was speaking truth. 
They were cut to the heart, but what was their response? And they gnashed their teeth at him. But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him. How? With one accord. You'll find in Acts chapter 7 the exact same thing you find in Acts chapter 2. Both groups, the Bible literally says, were cut to the heart. And both of them were unified into one accord. The only difference is one accepted the cutting truth and the other rejected it. But both got organized for service. Right? What was the great unifying force between the the Sanhedrin when Jesus was alive? It was Jesus, wasn't it? Wasn't it beautiful how he brought Pharisees and Sadducees together? Right? They didn't have a common cause. They had a common enemy. And Satan was like, let's bring unity in the work and we can finish this thing. He did it through united effort. Think about the, the Tower of Babel. The Lord looked down and saw that the people are one. And now nothing that they attempt can be impossible for them. Satan knows the power of a united effort. Why in the world is it that God's people have to be reminded that we should work together? Christ's organization, of course, we see the 12 disciples, uh, just like the 12 tribes, and it's fascinating too. Uh, I wish I had the time. If you look at the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, look at them in 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 the book of Revelation, you'll see that they're not the same names. In fact, one of the key central four is not even in the list in Revelation. Studied out sometime, what happened to Dan? He was one of the inside leaders around the camp of Israel, and he's not in the book of Revelation. Did you know that happened in God's 12 apostles, Christ's 12 apostles too, 12 disciples? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I mean, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Peter, James, John. You always hear about those, but who was that fourth guy that was looked to as a leader amongst the 12? Judas. In fact, you read through Desire of Ages, you get the impression that the other 11 looked to Judas as the natural leader. But he deserted the Lord too. And when it came time to fill his place, they didn't go for, they had two candidates. Why didn't they just have 13? No, they drew lots and the Lord led and they have 12 now, right? It's fascinating. 12. The feeding of the 5,000, if you read it in the book of Mark, some people just say and they distribute it out, but you notice very carefully the Lord organized them in groups of tens, I mean of hundreds and fifties, and then he passed out the, Jesus never did baptizing. He never baptized one person. He had his disciples do it for him. Jesus didn't pass out the loaves and fishes. He gave them to disciples for them to distribute. When Lazarus came forth, Jesus did all this work of resurrecting him and then left him bound up. And he said, all right, now you guys go do it. Untie him, you know. He delegated service for other people. He was organized. He was building up a structure that would go on after his life here was over. The 70 70 apostles, just like they were 12 tribes and 70 elders in the camp, uh, the same thing here. And they were sent out and he told them how, two by two, here's what you take, here's where you go, here's what you do. When the 12 apostles themselves were sent out, they were told their marching orders, wait here in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll get the gift of tongues, and then you're going to go start in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the ends of the earth. It was very organized. And then they added pragmatism, by the way. You go to Acts chapter 7. They start getting, uh, well, Stephen, who we just read about in Acts chapter 7, was one of the seven deacons. And why were the deacons there at all? Because the elders, the apostles, I mean, were getting bogged down in doing the daily duties, what they call in the Bible, waiting on tables, serving tables, the practical duties. They said, we need some people to cover this so we can go preach the word. And so they added elements, just like they did in ancient Israel, for the necessities of ministry so they could keep doing their work as God had raised it up. Uh, this, this, by the way, this structure helped in the doctrinal discussion in Acts chapter 15. Uh, the, the issue then was circumcision. It's not one of the issues that's popular today, but they had an issue that was huge then, and they took it back to the leaders, and they had a general conference session, if you will. And they had representatives from the world field study this thing out. They prayed for the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he gave an answer through his organized body. It was fascinating. It's fascinating how it worked. And of course, that idea of a body, Paul employs that over Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, Ephesians 1 through 5, every single chapter, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you always see that analogy of the body, especially in chapter 4, Colossians 1, 2, and 3. He repeatedly comes back, it's a body, it's a body, it's a body. We have different parts to play, but we're organized under one head and we're organized for service. The opening lines in the book, uh, Acts of the Apostles, it talks about how the church of God, the church of Christ was organized for service. 
And it's interesting, she uses the word organized, not established, not founded, not started up. It was organized, it was planned, it was plotted. And through the Holy Spirit's power, the work was executed and success was seen because it was faithful to God's structure. Adventist organization, the Seventh-day Adventist organization, is based on these biblical principles. From the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the writings of Mrs. White and her elucidation of the Old Testament and New Testament, we have these biblical principles. Thus, you see, uh, you don't have a, a, well, we'll get to that in a minute. It emphasizes pragmatism. We need a structure that works. We don't want to prop up a structure just because it's a structure, but we need the structure to work. Issue-driven. So if something comes up, we assign a committee to go look at it, and we, we don't just, for instance, if you're at a church board, you need to be moving forward. I have seen church boards get bogged down and talking about $200 things. When we got a budget of tens of thousands of dollars, we're nickel and diming over, I don't know, should we get the big sign or the little sign? I don't know. And you get, establish this committee, say, you four people, go work on that. We're going to keep moving forward. Right? If you see a need, address it and keep going. Address it and keep going. But don't get bogged down in all the small stuff. You've got to keep your eyes at 30,000 feet and keep moving because we have a work to finish. And it voids the extremes of papacy and anarchy. Seven-day Adventism is neither congregational nor papal. Right? Do you, by the way, I was just talking about this with a friend last night. I'm, I'm a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and one of the greatest things is its organizational structure. I don't have to make the people like me. Do you know how much freedom that brings? If you are paying my paycheck directly, then I'm naturally prone to kissing up. And that doesn't do you any good, and it only makes me feel good temporarily, but I feel like a sellout, but at least I got a nice car. Right? It completely... You know, you're never going to get rich, They're going to take care of you all right. (laughs) But we want you to preach the word faithfully. That's why they have the structure. That's why they have the systematic benevolence, or what we now call tithing. Friends, tithe is holy unto the Lord. Not just to the local church, not just to the conference. It's holy to the Lord. And and what about like, well, well, wait a minute. What if the the conference is is really mishandling the tithe? They might. You know why? Because they're chock full of people. And people stink. Let's bow our heads for prayer. No. <laughs> They're chock full of people, and people make mistakes. They're sinful. They have natures. They have propensities trying to get over, and they might mishandle it. And it might be a train wreck sometime, but you keep tithing because it's holy to the Lord. And it makes his system go forward. Okay? Uh, and avoids the streams of, extremes of anarchy, which would be congregationalism. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. There's no structure at all. Or, and it doesn't have a papacy, you know? I can't tell you how many times a little issue comes up, maybe say at a local church level, a conference, or union even, or even a division. Something will happen in the church and say, man, somebody needs to address it. What needs to happen is the general conference president needs to come down and just, wouldn't it be awful <laughs> if every little problem, just by papal edict, he would resolve with a big push of a button? <laughs> we think that's great as long as that's in favor of what we want. But what if it's against what, you know, we need to study something out. We don't want a papal kind of by fiat saying, we will now do this, or you do this, or you're fine. It's controlling type of thing. No, no, no. Mrs. White is so powerful. You read through her studies, uh, her, her materials on organization. Thoroughly organized, yet not driven by any single individual. Okay? Somehow it's supposed to be a beautiful blend of grassroots uh, uh, initiative, but still top-down organization. They're supposed to work. Uh, let me give you some examples here. Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. There was order in the church when Christ was upon the earth, and after his departure, order was strictly observed among his apostles. And now in the last days, while God is bringing his children into the unity of faith, there is more real need of order than ever before. For as the Lord unites his people, Satan and his angels are very busy to undo this unity and to destroy it. It is Satan's studied effort to lead professed Christians just as far from heaven's arrangement as he can. Therefore, he sometimes deceives even the professed people of God and makes them believe that order and discipline are enemies to spirituality. You would think she was writing to a postmodern mindset, right? Not, not a chance. This is not new. This is 1905, the turn of the century, like the other century. <coughs> that the only, safe for, the only safety for them is to let each pursue his own course. 
And you hear these voices in Adventism crying out, we need more local control, we need more individual control. Why can't we have more, diver- why can't we just each go our own way? Well, that sounds great from a human perspective. We respect individual rights, but according to Christ's model of organization, he wants us to be united together. We have to get along. Because brothers and sisters, that's what heaven's like. I can't think of the reference off the top of my head, but somewhere in Mrs. White's writing, she references, like, people would be willing to come into the church if they saw in the church an agreement about what truth was. They're like, you guys can't even get along with yourselves. Why would I want to be a part of you? Seventh-day Adventist church structure. Local church, conference, union, general conference. And, of course, divisions are just branched to this. I'm just going to cover this very briefly. I put this at the top because most people would flip this around, and I think it's kind of really cool (laughs) to put the local church. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the most direct ministry with non-Adventists, with new people, the very cutting edge of ministry happens right here. If you're waiting for this to do something big or this to do something, or even this to do something big, you're missing out on something you could be doing right now that would start small and get big. Do you see the difference? But you've got to start here. Please, don't just go home and pray that we get the right leaders at the unions. Go home and ask the Lord to make you the right leaders in the local church. And I'm going to say this, and it's recorded, but don't just go home and be like, I'm going to be a better youth in my church. Go home and be an adult for the Lord. Don't just be like, I'm going to go home and do something really radical. I'm going to have a great youth Sabbath school. Don't just do that. Get on the nominating committee. Get on finance committee. You know, you want to have influence in the local church? Show up to a business meeting. You have a church of 200 people? There'll be 20 if you're lucky at the business meeting. Your voice just got amplified by like a factor of 50. Right? Show up. Know what's going on. For instance, right now in our churches, we're starting the nominating committee process. And we're like, oh, committees, it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to go individual. I'm just leaving. The... Come on now. I believe in the nominating committee. And not just because I'm paid to. I actually think it's a good thing. But what you'll have, for instance, is you'll have a pre-nominating committee who selects the actual nominating committee. And already that seems a little laughable. A committee to form a committee? Yes. Here's how it works. The, the church body will select, let's say, five to seven names to be on this pre-nominating committee. And those people are going to choose who's going to be the nominating committee. Why don't you get involved with the process instead of harping about how dumb it is and just leaving church and doing something? Get involved. You g- talk to people ahead of time. And say, Think about it. Pray about it. Deliberate. Who would be good on these committees? And you submit the names. In fact, if you... If, and when, the, when the nominating committee meets, if he's like, there's a need, I hope they really get a good person to lead this thing, go volunteer to be that good person. And again, it's not just like, you know, pizza parties for the kids in the gym and rec night. I'm talking about real, legitimate ministry stuff. Demonstrate that young people are capable of more than just being entertained and drooling. Did we run out of time? Please tell me that did not get on the... Are we <laughs> but I think... We're closing in on an idea here, but I, there's so much more we could talk about. I know we could get more and more practical. Um, fractal geometry, Russian dolls, and golf clubs, we can get to that later. Um, uh, but here's the, the punchline. True revolution is not reinventing the wheel, but driving the car we already have. The Lord has given us a structure. He's given us a system. Don't go always try to branch off and create some new thing. Work the system that God gave you to work for his glory, and success will follow. Is that clear? All right, Israel. Thanks so much for sharing. Well, was that uh, was that something that was useful for you today? Amen. We're going to try to continue a little bit more of a interview style and addressing a very important topic of youth and uh, and and what it means to be a youth in local church. So please join us. That'll be tomorrow. Let's pray, and then we have about a two three minute break before we set up for our next uh, presentation. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you are a God of order and that you've given to us a successful model for how to advance this work. Lord, teach us to be organized as you are. 
and to be successful in the work that you've called us to do as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.